My wife's grandfather, Roy Hayes, was born in 1899. He had a number of older siblings and also those younger than himself. There were 14 children in all. Theirs was a hard life with few luxuries, scraping out a living on a hard scrabble farm in Arkansas. But by the time he was 12, his father died, and he took on the responsibility for his younger siblings, mostly because the older ones, who had a different mother, were unwilling to be burdened. As a result, he became a migrant worker before he was even a teenager, so that he could earn enough money to keep some bread on the table for his family. He followed the wave of migrant farm work from Texas up through the plains to Illinois. It was hard work, and his absence was deeply grieved, but he left home for the sake of his family. The American story is an immigrant one, isn't it? And for many, a migrant one. Almost all of us came from somewhere else. And for many of our families, the story includes one person who came on their own to find work, to avoid starvation, escape war or oppression, who came for the benefit of the family, who might have an opportunity to join later. There are probably people in the mile around this church building who are here without their families, earning some money, sending it back home, seeking ways for the rest of the family to join them. It's a hardship. It's a sacrifice. It's absence for the greater good. Now, I don't want to say that the incarnation of Jesus is an immigrant story, but there are things about it, I think, that resonate with that, especially in the ascension of Christ that we observe today. The disciples, they were overjoyed that Jesus was not dead, but alive and with them. And they couldn't bear the thought of him leaving, especially now that he was risen from the grave. The real work could begin, right? I mean, now we can really get on with ministry, Jesus. I mean, you can walk through doors and you know, all kinds of great stuff we can do. Plus, they just needed his company and wanted his company. As the risen Jesus walked with two of his followers to Emmaus, even before they recognized him, they urged him to stay. I can only imagine the kind of urgings that were going on among the disciples in that time following the resurrection. Sorrow filled their hearts at the thought of Jesus' departure. But in John 16, he tells them, it is for your benefit that I go away. In this time after the resurrection, he was getting them ready to be in a place where they would not have his physical presence to rely upon. He was paving the way for his exaltation and also the sending of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't just going away, sort of, you know, just disappearing. He was fulfilling his mission. The ascension is not a way just to get Jesus off stage. It's the path of exaltation. It's hope and power for his people. The ascension is not just a footnote. In fact, in looking at the New Testament, we see it's, it's not a minor episode. It's absolutely foundational. It's, it's found in all four Gospels. Again in Acts, in Paul, 1 Peter, and Revelation. All of the major creeds contain this confession, he ascended into heaven. And his ascension signifies his victory over sin and death and his glorification as the one who has completed what was set before him. So it's important. It's important for us. And it has meaning and purpose for our lives as Jesus' followers. Marva Dawn is a scholar and writer, theologian who recently passed away. She was a wonderful teacher, um, 
brilliant scholars and a lovely Christian. When I met her one time at a conference, I was struck by how much scripture she had memorized. It just sort of flowed out of her. But also I noted her physical disabilities, which were significant. She was full of joy and life, even as her body failed. She wrote this about the ascension. She said, Ascension Day is the perfect church holiday because the world can't steal it. The culture around us has ruined Christmas and Easter, she says. The world has stolen Christmas, Christmas for its consumeristic purposes, and it has seized Easter for the same idolatry. In my teen years, I played clarinet in the high school band for the town Christmas parade at which Santa Claus was flown in by helicopter. Later, I heard they flew the bunny in for Easter. But the world hasn't got the foggiest notion of what to do with someone flying out. (laughs) Well, in the church, do we know what to do with it? Do we grasp its importance? I want to bring forward from the scriptures today just a couple of things that are highlights about the benefits of Christ's going. The benefits of the ascension, his return to the Father. Now remember that Jesus gave up his place with the Father to be humbled, to come among us, to be one of us and deal with the brokenness of sin through the offering of himself. That's a central understanding. I mean, it's a central point of the Christian faith. John's gospel tells us that he had been with God in the beginning, but that God sent his Son out of love for us. Paul writes to the Philippians that Jesus didn't hold on to what he could have demanded. He didn't grasp his equality with God, but he emptied himself becoming a servant. He made himself nothing. Jesus had history before he ever arrived on the scene of our frail world. And the ascension is a sort of clarification and resolution of the story, where the strands, the different strands are pulled together and things are made clear. He was always God's son, always in the Father. But now he returns to his rightful place, and in a new way, incarnate and enthroned. So first we see that ascension is God's work in exalting his son. Return is an important theme here. You know, it's interesting we find that to be true in so many of the stories that we really want to read over and over again through history, the things that inspire us. The Odyssey is all about the arduous journey of Odysseus to return home after the Trojan War in order to assert his rightful place as king. Tolkien's story of Bilbo's journey that we know as the Hobbit is also titled There and Back Again. When President John F. Kennedy in 1961 presented his vision for lunar exploration, urging Congress to set a goal before the decade was out, he said the U.S. would land a man on the moon and return him safely to Earth. Just getting there wouldn't do it. Success involved return. It involved completion. When Jesus speaks to Mary in the garden on that first Easter morning, He doesn't exactly tell her to proclaim his resurrection, but to tell his disciples that he is returning to the Father. Return is the goal. It means all has been completed. He's proven his absolute obedience to the Father. He's lived a life that humanity should have lived but didn't or found it couldn't. And with his work complete, he returns fully human, fully divine into into the the majesty of of Father. It's a mystery beyond our comprehension. But it's not beyond our ability to at least approach it and embrace it. 
Paul says this to the church in Ephesus. That God raised Jesus and exalted him far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. There's nothing now that Christ does not transcend in terms of power and authority thanks to the ascension. He is now king, not in disguise, but openly revealed and shown and witnessed. As our psalm today reads, He has made the world so sure that it cannot be moved. Ever since the world began, your throne has been established. You are from everlasting. This is a powerful declaration of comfort and assurance for us. It means the one who is the embodiment of God's love, who healed, who forgave sin, who called people to know him, who defended the little children and those the world had no place for, who gave up his life for his friends, for us, is now the powerful king who has no equal, who loves us, intercedes for us, advocates for us. And this is now his work to reign and to reign in love. And there is no limit to his authority because he has returned to the Father. I find tremendous comfort and strength in that today. That that the Lord is in control of things. That he's not limited in any dimension. We need to know this, especially in the hard places of our lives. We need to know it in the kind of year that we've lived. The disease, the divisions, the desecrations of life that have taken place. And I think these things, these these, uh, terrible sufferings and so on, when they come to us, It causes us to question whether anyone is in control anymore. And yet we affirm that God is working out his purposes, even when we can't see them yet. And we make this affirmation because of the ascension of Christ to the Father's side. When I feel it's all my responsibility, or when I feel that it all has to rest with me, and it's on my shoulders, it creates stress and distraction, lack of health, lack of sleep, all these other things that we know. But the one who has all authority is advocating. He's advocating for us. He's advocating for truth. He's advocating for justice, for what is right and good. And in our desire to see the world healed, we look to Him. He can accomplish what we cannot because He has returned to the Father and all things are being placed under His feet. As we trust in Him, His work is done through His church over which he is the head. So that's a wonderful truth, that in the ascension, in the ascension that we celebrate today, God exalts the Son. But also in the ascension, humanity is brought to God. The incarnation brought God to humanity. In the ascension, the story is completed. St. Ambrose said he descended as God, he ascended as man. I mean, the very thing that God longed for in the creation, to be in fellowship with his creatures, is realized as Jesus returns to the Father's presence. The body of Jesus that was crucified and rose is the same body that ascends to the Father. Bonaventure said, Jesus showed to the Father the wounds that he suffered for us. Through Jesus, who came to take on flesh and therefore returned to God in the flesh, we are represented before the Father. We are with him because he is one with us. 
The Scottish thinker John Duncan remarked that the dust of the earth is now on the throne of majesty. I mean, this is a hard thing to grasp, but it's important because it has implications for how we live our lives as believers. Colossians says we are to set our hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I mean, this is where we're headed. This is where Jesus already is. When we begin the Eucharist, the Eucharistic prayers, what do we say? Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. That is reflecting this this truth that is here in, in Colossians. Paul tells the Ephesians that the great power of the resurrection and the ascension is now theirs. He calls it incomparably great power. This is the power that the ascension makes possible in the sending of the Holy Spirit, which is next week at Pentecost. I mean, if Jesus is only a good and ethical teacher, then to follow him means we have to try the best we can. We have to try hard, right, to act like him. Good luck. However, if Jesus returns to God as his true son, is exalted and glorified and given power, power for life that's extended to the church, then we're called and enabled to live very different kinds of lives. Lives that are charmed by the ascension. We're enabled, we're filled up as the risen and ascended Christ lives through us. Martin Luther stated, I believe that he ascended, therefore he can help me and all believers in all our necessities. Thirdly, in the ascension, we are sent to witness. The gospel is movement, it's not static. It's about journey and destination and all the points in between. Its energy and its direction is is directed toward the earth. It's outward. And the movement of Jesus to the Father signals our movement to reach out. Luke makes sure that we know that when Jesus ascends, people see it. I mean, nobody saw the resurrection, right? At least we don't have an account of that. But people see. In Acts it says He's taken up before their very eyes. They were looking. Why do you stand here looking, the questions asked of them. And Luke, you are witnesses of these things. In the Gospel of Matthew, the ascension is more or less implied, but not the call to witness. And it's in that well-known passage in Matthew 28 that we have the Great Commission to go into all the world, the call to be witnesses, martyrs. That call is made at the ascension, and it's made possible at Pentecost. The completion of Jesus' earthly ministry is the beginning of our mission to witness to Him. Without the ascension, the church may have simply turned in on itself, living in joy of the resurrection and hoping to catch a glimpse of Jesus somewhere, telling the stories over and over again to ourselves. But that's incomplete. That's missing the ascension chapter. Luke tells us Jesus lifts His hands and blesses them, and while He is blessing, He's taken up to heaven. This is a blessing of mission and sending. It's a call to be witnesses. And that sending is part of the benefit of Christ's return. You know, someone painted a picture of what things would be like maybe in the world today if Jesus had not ascended to the Father. If Jesus still lived in Jerusalem, what would that be like? Well, it would be uh, people traveling from all over the world to try to catch a glimpse of Him. It would be crowded uh, Streets, it would be lines miles long, and we would never see him. We would never see him. 
And yet because He has returned to the Father, because He sends us as witnesses and sends the Spirit, He is with us. We don't have to wait in line to see Him. He's not limited in that way. You know, our care for others right now, in prayer, in good works, in advocating for the right, that emerges not only from the life of Jesus, but from his role as the one who is seated at God's right hand, who intercedes for us. We speak for others. We speak for those who have no voice or standing because Jesus testifies on our behalf. We witness and we wait, just like the early church. They waited eagerly for the Holy Spirit. We wait in prayer and expectation for how the church will emerge from pandemic. How we, how we will, Redeemer, specifically. What will God call us to? What will the new season look like? How will our ministry and life be different? I think it will be. I really do. But I think that's a great opportunity. <laughs> right now we're waiting and we're listening. We're praying. You'll notice as right before the sermon began, I blew out the Paschal candle. The Paschal candle, which is with us in the Easter season to speak of Jesus' presence on earth among his disciples. It's been extinguished because he has gone to the Father. Now we wait. Now we wait. And I want to encourage us in this week, even though we have the Holy Spirit, yes, we don't have to wait again, yet let's put ourselves in the place of the church that waited, that gathered in prayer that was obedient to wait and to pray and to listen. In this liturgical year, that's where we are right now. And this week, we celebrate the rich benefits of Christ's ascension. God is with us, and we are now with God. All authority has been placed under Him, and He's using that authority to rule in love and mercy and to advocate for you and for me and for the world. He knows us. He knows our suffering. He knows our trials. He knows our hopes and our dreams. And He is whispering them into the Father's ear. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.